Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and I'm happy to have with me today one of my closest friends from childhood, Dr. Anubhav Kaul. Hi, Anubhav. Hi, Nabil. Anubhav is a chief medical officer at the Mattapan Health Center and also an internist at the Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Massachusetts. He's a physician leader and a board-certified internist with public health expertise and proficiency in clinical operations, systems innovation, population health, patient experience and safety, and healthcare policy. Anupav completed his master's in public health focused on health policy and clinical practice improvements from the Dartmouth Institute. He also completed his medical degree from Ross University School of Medicine and he completed his Bachelor's of Science degree in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from Boston University. Most importantly, Anubhav and my friendship started in grade five at Kolkata International School in India, where we were classmates for two years. Anubhav is also an avid football and basketball fan with strong opinions on Tom Brady and his career choices. So Anubhav, let's get started. Um, How about we start with discussing what it means to be a chief medical officer? Nabil, I started working as the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Manapan Health Center, a community-based outpatient health center just outside of uh, Boston, south of Boston. It serves a underserved patient population. It serves a very ethnically diverse patient population. Um, And we are one of the um, safety net providers for the community, um, providing all sorts of primary care services, social services, and also public health uh, services as well um, here in the community of Mattapan. And uh, unfortunately, Mattapan is also one of those communities um, here in Boston that has been hit the hardest with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we are trying to stay ahead. We're trying to uh, do our best, and we're trying to make an impact for the community by providing the services that they need and trying to get ahead of this um, pandemic as soon as we can. So as a chief medical officer, what are some of your roles and responsibilities around this type of a pandemic situation? At this point, things have changed so much, Nabil. Um, We had a structure in place prior to the uh, pandemic, and then now we have a whole different world that we operate under uh, post-pandemic. By by uh, clarifying what I mean, um, we had the brick-and-mortar presence of uh, being a health center here in the community, having our um, leadership structure, having our uh, provider structure, having our support structure in place that is very similar to uh, most health institutions. But we've had to pivot so dramatically after um, this incident of getting to the reality of dealing with this pandemic, we have really unified as, as a team um, to fight this and to come up with the solutions because all hands are on deck um, and there's less um, 
less uh, understanding of uh, what everybody's uh, roles are in terms of uh, what their job titles are and more centered about uh, working as teams, um, leading initiatives um, as teams, having project leaders, uh, and truly having a very united approach to this issue. Um, so um, in conclusion, what I want to say is that uh, right now my role is honestly uh, to support my uh, team as the best as I can uh, and enable uh, the success that uh, we look to have um, and also play a, a strong role on the front lines as well to be doing just the same uh, sort of work that everybody's trying to do um, to test, to screen, to support patients and also support our community at large. That's great to hear. And of course, you are right there in the front lines uh, of this pandemic. One of the brave souls that are out there helping people in need that are struggling with, with the virus and trying to recover. So we definitely appreciate all your efforts. So let's talk a little bit about the, the impact that the pandemic has had on the telemedicine space. I know that a lot of people are now being encouraged not to necessarily go to the hospital or go to see a doctor in person if they're not in an emergency situation and leverage different technical solutions that are out there. So how has the, the pandemic helped accelerate some of the adoption of these technical solutions out there and in particular, what are some potential security and privacy concerns around these technologies and technical solutions? Yes, uh, we have we have experienced so much newness, um, and this is part of um, why medicine uh, and providing care uh, is such an innovative uh, profession um, because we are adapting to the current climate. Telemedicine has been. Um, available and present um, for multiple years. You can say up to 20 years or even before. And telemedicine has taken so many different forms over the years. Um, uh, your doctor calling you on the phone and updating you on your results is, is telemedicine. Um, uh, you receiving results through a electronic portal um, and appreciating those uh, test results um, is telemedicine. You getting feedback uh, from your provider over some sort of a text message-based platform is telemedicine. But what has changed dramatically is the reliance on telemedicine to be the, the most significant platform of how we provide care to our patients. Um, over the last four weeks, uh, we have pretty much transitioned to 90% of our care being over telemedicine for our usual patient care. And uh, we're managing chronic conditions. We're managing urgent concerns uh, over telemedicine. And the reason we were able to do that and sustain these efforts is because the payers, public and private, have caught up. And they have recognized the essential need of um, working in the current climate and working in the current environment and have been able to um, help us receive reimbursement for providing telemedicine-based care. And so... It's been supported, it's been uh, sustainable, and we're looking to improvise on it. The challenges that we are currently having um, are mostly adaptation. Um, a lot of our clinicians um, have not had any sort of training to um, adapt to telemedicine using video-based visits or even doing visits um, over the phone. There's a certain level of etiquette that um, you need to somewhat establish to do an effective 
telephone-based visit or a video-based visit, but that's part of the process of learning. And we will definitely get better at it as we seek more insight from each other and from um, sources externally as well. The other challenge is, is, is not being able to connect with the patient physically. Now, there's a tremendous amount of care that we can provide our patients um, without having them to take the effort of coming to the clinic, going through those logistics, transport, the support that they may need physically to get to an appointment, um, being able to provide consultation and being able to provide care um, at the presence of uh, them being at home and making care accessible, that's fantastic. Um, but the physical connection that we sometimes uh, require uh, for patients to be in our presence and be able to evaluate, that is irreplaceable. But there are certain things that we can definitely utilize. Um, we are getting a lot of funding right now to um, figure out exactly what sort of devices that we can um, bestow our patients, uh, such as um, blood pressure cuffs at home, uh, glucose meters at home so we can manage diabetes, um, even weight scales at home so we can see how their weight might be fluctuating, uh, which helps us manage certain con conditions such as heart failure. Um, uh, even, um, even also using spirometers to see how uh, well their asthma is, uh, is, is doing. So those sort of devices may help us bridge those gaps. But yes, there will always be um, that irreplaceable um, human touch that a physical exam um, gives you that you can never recreate. But at this current time, we're trying to do our best. And the other piece of this is also the uh, social connection. One of the most gratifying parts about um, providing care in person is the human connection that you have with the patient. Uh, and with the advent of technology, with the advent of electronic medical records, um, we are more distracted by the technology than by uh, the person in front of us, in this case, the patient. Um, so at times, it is difficult to make eye connection uh, with the patient while they're in the room where you have limited time with, um, with the patient um, and you're focused on your computer screen while you're trying to um, hit and click all the buttons that you may need to or type a, um, a quick note uh, while the patient is in uh, the same room as you. So sometimes that connection is, is lost because you're not making eye contact with that uh, patient right there and then. And that's basically expounded when you're also doing telemedicine. Now, um, there might be certain things that we can do in terms of our mannerisms and how we connect with our patients over video um, and also over telephone. But maintaining that human connection, I think, will be a challenge. As for the standpoint of security, um, I think um, there's, there's always a challenge um, for providers to make sure that our communications with our patients are secure uh, and HIPAA compliant. Um, we struggle with that. Um, I know a number of clinicians who um, give their cell phone numbers to their patients, um, receive text messages from their patients to allow for accessibility of care, and they have all the intentions to do the right thing. Um, but my risk manager and my IT uh, director has, uh, has always uh, warned me that these are not 
the modes of communicating with patient, even though they're easy, they're accessible, uh, but we run a certain level of risk when it comes to using unofficial platforms, uh, thus using encrypted emails, uh, thus uh, using um, the patient portal to do text messaging are more viable options. But there will always be a challenge when it comes to security and how well we can protect the patient's information and not put the patient at risk and also not put uh, ourselves at risk as an organization when we're using unsecure modes of communication. I think it's it's interesting when you bring up the whole human connection and the importance for face-to-face -face interaction that we all have, especially in the medical space. I think it's an impact that people are starting to feel even outside of the medical space, but just in general, as people are sheltering in place and staying home and trying to avoid mm -hmm. big gatherings and crowds. Uh, I, I know that this is a side discussion, but even you and I, we used to run into each other at the gym. We were practically neighbors. Uh, we used to hang out almost every week, if not at least monthly. But recently, we've had to resort to video calls and conference calls to at least have some face-to-face -face interactions. And for me to at least see my niece, which is your daughter, <laughs> and say hi to her um, over video. So, you know, I'm, I'm digressing. Let's go back to the topic at hand. So... What are some of the software solutions that you're leveraging to support your patients uh, in this virtual capacity? So here at Madvan Health Center, we're using Epic as our EMR, and Epic is integrated with Zoom technology to provide the video-based visits. So we have just kicked off that initiative, and um, folks are getting warmed up to use uh, video-based visits. Um, uh, we have uh, also the functionality of um, patients being able to send in pictures. For example, if they have a rash, they can take a picture and then upload it through their patient portal, and we are able to see that um, in the electronic medical record as well. But majority of our visits right now, um, Nabil, are still um, telephone-based, and most of the visits will continue to be telephone-based because of the patient population that we work with. Um, that have accessibility to a phone, but for them to be able to set up video-based visits and um, have the functionality to um, have the uh, bandwidth to um, upload a, an app and um, download the patient portal and then also communicate over uh, Zoom with the provider might be a little bit of a challenge, but we're definitely going to give it um, a full try to make sure that we can get as many people signed up with patient portals so that we can have that availability of video-based technology. And sometimes, Nabil, I also um, have uh, biased thoughts about what our patients are able to do and what they're able to use based on, say, their age or their demographics. Um, I'm also surprised by how quickly patients can adopt technology, um, and thus we are making sure that we present all the options uh, to our patients to see if they can um, utilize the uh, patient portals uh, through Epic, thus so that they can have all the available functions of uploading pictures using video with the provider. Um, and and uh, if need be, they can still always connect with us over the telephone. So you mentioned something very interesting that piqued my interest. You mentioned that there are various different medical devices, things ranging from blood sugar measurements being taken, mm -hmm. blood pressure, 
and you know weight being monitored, etc. And these are devices that you can send patients home. I believe a lot of these devices are also connected to the internet so that the data from the measurements being taken are constantly updated and sent to the medical professional and the medical provider. What are some of the potential security concerns that are considered as these type of software systems are being developed, if any, or is there a gap in that space? Because of um, not knowing uh, what some of those security threats are, because we have never utilized them, uh, at least in our institution, we have never um, synced these devices to a patient portal that connects to an electronic uh, medical record. Um, I know our IT team has done a fantastic job setting up firewalls and making sure all our lines are secure and all the interfaces that we have with the patient are secure. But I think the newness of this um, will bring a lot of experience, a lot of, um, you know, unexpected problems and challenges. Um, so it's one of those situations we just need to be prepared for and see what comes with it. But, you know, I um, am not going to speak as a security ex expert. Um, I'm usually pretty compliant with what I'm told to do by my uh, IT director and our uh, compliance officer. Um, but I think it's one of those situations where we'll learn as we progress through um, with our efforts to provide more telebased um, care and telemonitoring as well with these devices, which are fantastic. The, the market for this is, is growing, and being able to provide that support for patients at home is tremendous. I think the security concerns, um, again, as a clinician, uh, I'm not constantly thinking about those. Um, I'm thinking about what is the most accessible and what is the most easiest way to provide uh, care to our patients. You know, having done a bunch of security assessments for electronic medical devices and also for organizations that build hardware to be leveraged by doctors, I know for a fact that doctors absolutely hate security because it interferes in their ability to conduct the job at hand. And in certain cases, the job at hand takes significantly higher priority than the potential security risk that you're getting exposed to. In, in terms You're of right. things like surgical equipment, for example, I don't think a doctor wants to have to enter a password before they can use the particular device because every second matters when it comes to the life of a patient being at risk. And then there are other things, of course, that allow doctors to monitor patients and their progress over time at home. And there are certain challenges there too. So the, the one that immediately comes to mind is around authentication and how do you authenticate your patient? So let's say you are trying to monitor the blood pressure of your patient and you send them home with a blood pressure device that's constantly feeding back data about the, every time they take a reading. Well, how do you know that the reading that they're taking is them versus their child or their spouse or their sibling or somebody else? You know, there's no easy way to really authenticate that. And it's very easy to cheat the system to either show progress or to falsify the data. And there are all these challenges that I think need a lot more focus and attention that probably the isn't there today, or even if it is is there, uh, it's probably not taking as much of a priority because usability uh, in, in your particular profession takes a much higher priority than the potential security risk. 
uh, in certain cases. So it's a very interesting space for me that I, I enjoy reading up on and, and studying and coming up with ideas on how you, it could be potentially hacked. That's why we need you. Um, we're not thinking about all these things. So we all play our parts. And uh, to your point, um, Nabil, um, yes, you're right. Um, you know, my, my job is to make sure that um, the interaction I'm having with the patient is as, as reliable as possible. Uh, and yes, we use the, the basic uh, measures of uh, ensuring that. And I'll be honest, there have been times where I've been on the phone um, with who I thought was the patient, but it ended up being a family member who picks up for the patient uh, because they can't speak um, the language. So we have a very ethnically diverse uh, patient population. So we're relying on families sometimes to be um, the advocates uh, for the patients themselves. Uh, so yes, we're going to run into that challenge um, where we may end up talking to a family, not knowing if the family member has full um, uh, jurisdiction about uh, their healthcare information and uh, making even decisions on their healthcare. So those are things that we need to be careful about and um, um, and you know be um, somewhat um, transparent about as well, uh, so that we're not uh, putting the patients at risk um, for unintended consequences. So Anupav, what are some changes you're making in terms of making prescriptions available to your patients, especially when a lot of them can't come and visit you in person? Nabil, the system always allowed for electronic prescribing um, for your most uh, usual medications to uh, treat multiple chronic conditions. Um, and that's been going on for quite a while. But um, one of the newer features of prescribing has been around the prescribing of uh, controlled substances, um, pain medications, um, certain um, psychiatric medications, um, and medications that are meant to treat um, uh, opioid addiction. So those uh, medications um, previously would have to be um, prescribed as a paper script. So the patient would come in physically uh, to pick up that medication script, identify themselves, and we would um, follow uh, procedures to make sure that um, the script was being um, provided um, safely and securely, and the patient was also receiving the right dose. And we also have a drug monitoring system that the state maintains uh, where we verify that the patient um, has uh, no aberrant behavior when it comes to uh, filling their scripts uh, from multiple locations uh, or receiving scripts from uh, multiple providers. Um, so it's a pretty tight process, and we try to maintain uh, good standard procedure around, around this. Um, but now with um, the electronic prescribing system now being amenable to allow us to prescribe controlled substances has um, made the process obviously more accessible, especially right now in the current times, uh, but has also added this security challenge to it to make sure that the identification piece from the provider standpoint, making sure that um, the patient is receiving these scripts in a secure manner at the pharmacy um, has been um, a new initiative for us. Uh, it's great for the patient. Uh, it's also great for the provider, but we had to adopt certain guidelines to make sure that um, we do this in a standardized fashion um, and also make sure that um, we are still connecting with these patients um, over the phone, over video, in person, 
uh, to see how their care is going, whether it's for pain management or treating them for uh, addiction-based disorders. So um, a new feature for us, and so we're going to be learning a lot about this as we move forward. So if I understand it correctly, you're basically leveraging electronic prescriptions that you can make for your patients for controlled substances, but you're authenticating them through a multi-step authentication process, leveraging an out-of-band communication channel like a text message being sent to their personal cell phone or notifications being sent to their personal email addresses from where they can then go and request the prescription. Right. So um, the process also involves um, the provider who's prescribing the prescription to authenticate themselves um, through a two-step process to be able to do this. And then also the patient will receive a notification from their pharmacy uh, that a prescription is ready for their pickup. That's fantastic. I'm glad to see some progress being made in this area too. Yeah, the, the, uh, the whole goal is to, again, increase accessibility. Um, but with accessibility um, comes uh, the responsibility of making sure that our parameters of prescribing and appropriately prescribing are in place. Uh, so we will be keeping a close eye on that. That's great. So let's uh, change topics a little bit. I know that you're a huge Tom Brady fan. So how do you feel about Tom Brady leaving the New England Patriots to go play for the Buccaneers? Uh, yes. So, you know, honestly, um, Tom Brady could not have picked a better time to make this transition than in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so there were two, <laughs> two benefits of that. Um, one is that... Um, the timing of this was in the midst of um, so much chaos, and we're still kind of uh, unraveling ourselves here uh, during uh, this pandemic, that um, I honestly have not had much time to think about it. Um, and the second benefit of that is um, basically a follow-on from the first benefit is that it hasn't hit me yet. So I haven't <laughs> thought about it. It hasn't hit me as yet. And maybe when the football season comes around, um, it will feel more realistic. Um, but I'm one of those um, fans that is more of a team-based fan. Uh, I'm a Boston native, um, a Bostonian at heart, uh, so I think my allegiance uh, will remain with the team. Um, Tom Brady um, has uh, really redefined what sports meant to me for the last 20 years, so I'm definitely thankful for that and wish him the best, but I'm definitely a Patriots fan uh, before a Tom Brady fan. I think it's important for us, for our audience to know, even though they can't see you, that right now, while I conduct this uh, interview with you, you are wearing a Patriots jersey. And I don't know if it says Tom Brady on the back or not, but I can see that you are wearing a Patriots jersey for the interview. So next time there's a Patriots versus Buccaneers game, who are you supporting? Good question. So I would, um, I would hope for a Patriots win, but a good Tom Brady performance. How about that? <laughs> That's a very uh, diplomatic answer from a doctor. Um, Anubhav, thank you so much for your time. It's been fun, and I hope this uh, pandemic ends soon so we can actually meet up in person and hang out again. Thank you. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Nabil. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.